0: Welcome to Mental Side of the Game, a podcast exploring sports through a prism of mental health, social psychology, and sociology. And now, here is your host, Josh Webb. Oh, I want to thank everyone for joining me today. This is your host, Josh Webb, and as you heard by our lovely new intro, uh, this is Mental Side of the Game, a podcast that focuses on sports and mental health. Um, for today's discussion, I have brought in sort of a a, a, a sports vivant, uh, a man about town, a jack of all trades, uh, as they say, uh, Mr. Matt Zemek, who I know uh, from the college football spectrum, uh, but. Who other people could know from the tennis spectrum, the political spectrum, the regular football spectrum. When I say regular, I mean NFL. College is is really is regular. Um, but uh, Matt, how you doing today, man?
1: I'm doing well, Josh. Thanks for having me, and I'm really thrilled that you're doing this. Ah, Well, you know,
0: I had to do something with my time after my little mental crash, so this seemed like a good idea. It was recommended to me that I talk about
1: things, and
0: what better way to do that than on a podcast? you know, in today's discussion, at least, where we're going to start out, it kind of it plays into what's happening in the background of uh, our discussion right now, and that's Game 7 of the World Series. And I, today's discussion is going to focus on a term that you hear a lot in sports, and I am sure you are going to hear down the closing stretches of this game, and that is mental toughness um and and really i kind of find the phrase to be pointless because it doesn't really mean you're mentally tough it just means that in that moment you had the ability to not focus on the negative <sighs> Because that's really what I think separates out those who who succeed in that moment versus those who fail in that moment is some people believe that they're going to succeed. Other people believe that they're going to fail, and they do. And some people fall somewhere in the middle and, and, and you know. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if you got down to the brass tacks of it, there would be some fear or some hidden fear of somebody if they had to go up in a moment like that. There aren't too many of us that thrive in those moments. Um, But, Matt, I wanted to sort of get your opinion on the matter. That is why I brought you in. So uh, I will stop talking, and I'll
1: sort of let you take it away, and we'll, we'll just kind of go from there. Sure. Well, you know, it's a great fundamental question about sports, and I think the best starting point, Josh, is to say that, being excellent as an athlete or being excellent in any profession does not mean that one is more morally or ethically or spiritually enlightened than anyone else because being an athlete or being an actor or being a politician um it's a skill uh it's work it's a job uh it is not a reflection of a person's character and we are certainly seeing that with all of the revelations of, uh, you know, sexual assault, sexual harassment by powerful men and, and you know, being revealed one after another. So that, that really underscores that being great in a field of endeavor is, is not the same as being great at, in terms of ethics and, and private or public morality. So that, that's point one. Point two about, about mental toughness is that it, it I want to reemphasize that it really is a a a, a talent it is not uh it it has an intangible manifestation in other words you know you see a person swing a bat or sh- or make a basket those are the visible things but it is an intangible thing you know that that in the sense that it's in the mind but you know what's in the mind is real or at least it's real in the sense that it has a definite effect and power in our lives and you know if, when it's when that power is negative it has power over our lives but if it has power to help it's power that we use within our lives uh, within our work to make us better and so whether in our work or whether in our private lives um, you know we possess we, we possess the ability to harness a certain measure of control over how we feel. We can't prevent ourselves from feeling nervous in any big life moments such as Game 7 of the World Series. Being nervous is a sign that we care. Being nervous is a sign that something is important to us and matters to us for us to feel like that, for us to have that upwelling of, of sensations in our stomach or elsewhere in our bodies. Um, so, the, the notion that we can ward off nerves in the sense of not ever allow nerves to come into our, our bodies and minds, you know, that, that is a fallacy for anyone who entertains it. But So the talent, though, the, the, the talent of being mentally tough, and, again, that might not necessarily be toughness. I think maybe discipline is perhaps the better word, mental discipline, is simply to respond to nerves in in an accepting way, to welcome pressure. Looking at this Astro-Dodger Game 7 tonight as we record this podcast, Alex Bregman is energetic, but he's energetic in a way that is helping him focus his talents. You know, he stole third base, scored a run, made a great defensive play. Energy and the pressure associated with Game 7 are helping him. He is harnessing the the uh, rampant energy of the moment uh, to play well, whereas Cody Bellinger, just as energetic, uh, used that energy in a way which did not help him. He threw too hard to Hugh Darvish at first base in the first inning, and then he swung wildly at a few pitches outside of the strike zone. So for him – energy, adrenaline, uh, spun out of control. So maybe it's, a uh, uh, in, it's errant or not precise to say that, uh, Bregman is more mentally tough than Bellinger, but he certainly has displayed more discipline in terms of harnessing the mind and the body using, uh, profound energy and adrenaline to work for him rather than against him. So, Uh, this is a skill, it's part of work, but it shouldn't be referred to as a reflection on the character or the quality of someone as as a citizen uh, and for those who have religious faith for for, uh, someone as a moral being. So there are all sorts of layers, and I think it's just important that in terms of appreciating the mental side of sports, and how one does or doesn't respond to something is game seven, that we do separate it from one's private life and and one's public morality as opposed to just being a really good professional.
0: I would even go one step beyond that, and, and you're free to chime in once I drop it there, but I would even say that this is a racial issue. If and only because... People use the phrase mental toughness or mentally uh, 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 astute to either lift up athletes or to denigrate them. And 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 you see this a lot in black quarterbacks. White quarterbacks are referred to as mentally tough. Black quarterbacks are athletic. And 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 you see these types of and and, and they're starting to be called out more and more. So I'd like to think that that that. We're weaning that sort of terminology out of our, our sports vernacular, but I'm not foolish enough to think that it's going to go away. I think it's just going to lay dormant and then we'll return in some other fashion. But we, we see this, this concept of mental toughness even being used to diminish people racially. <sighs>
1: there's certainly a long history of that and especially you know doug williams uh and any other african-american quarterbacks who have won the super bowl i mean they the idea that they uh, the label of a black quarterback is almost like this subspecies i mean it's it's profound it's conspicuous it's it's consistent uh cam newton uh, certainly has dealt with that and is still dealing with that and you know his own personal mistakes to the side you know it the the, the idea that some players get a certain kind of label based on their skin color uh, you know it, it 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 gets into that point of uh, you know we're all made of the same stuff and uh, we we all. Uh, you know, have the capacity for good and the capacity for evil. We all have the capacity to be afraid and we all have the capacity to overcome our fears. So the really pernicious uh, and harmful uh, element of of that, that racial uh, component that you accurately note is simply that we make any sort of divisions uh, among human persons in terms of what they are capable of and, uh, what, what, uh, what their inherent dignity is. And, you know, when we get into discussions of mental illness and, you know, mental wholeness and, and the struggle to be whole, uh, a lot of the misinformation or the mis- imper- misperceptions surrounding these sorts of topics comes from an idea that, you know, if you're, uh, what you do in one sphere of your life automatically extends throughout Other aspects of your life, Uh, you know, all these, all these certain uh, assumptions packaged into, you know, how we view. Athletes and other public figures. You know, as soon, as soon as we get into this notion of, uh, black athletes supposedly being less cerebral, uh, less mentally skilled, uh, than, uh, wh- than white athletes, white quarterbacks, you know, that, that only reinforces every harmful notion, uh, in terms of forgetting that, that, you know, we are, we are first supposed to help each other and educate each other as whole persons, uh, not just uh, for one specific thing, but really, you know, for how to live life. And any kind of uh, subdivision or any kind of overarching assumption that, you know, what you do for a living is also the person that you are, any kind of cross-boundary assumption or verdict, um, it hurts the larger product of being able to create a society where we raise mentally whole uh men and women um, who can respond not just well at work um you know, in terms of situations such as a Game Seven of the World Series but who are able to respond well to personal relationships, toward the fame that comes with being an athlete, toward the wealth that comes with being an athlete, toward the uh, sexual uh, challenges and temptations that come with being an athlete, being able to harness all that together and not being able to, and not making overly severe judgments of athletes. And people in the public square in and through sports um that 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 is the deeper uh value of not labeling uh someone as a uh you know just an athlete or someone who is unintelligent or or who succeeds only through his or her athletic prowess not through uh the mental acuity needed to be a top flight n f l quarterback such as cam newton
0: yeah and it's it it's it's whole <laughs> weird for me when and 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 i guess it shouldn't be weird because social media is just a place where this sort of bile
1: exists
0: but even amongst those who aren't uh members uh, or or affiliated with some of the more reprehensible sects of our society there seems to be this sort of hidden maybe subconscious way that they regurgitate information that they've learned over the years when talking about black quarterbacks such that it prevents them from actually having a complete discussion about a quarterback who happens to be black. They have had these ideas so – ingrained and beaten in their head over the years of watching NFL live and, and, and it's, it's stuff that they don't even notice it. You know, it's just how many you, the brain picks up on, on patterns and, and, repetition. And you, you can only see so many experts go out there and talk about black quarterbacks as athletic and dynamic and, and playmakers and white quarterbacks as cerebral and pocket passers and this that and the other and there's even this uh this thought process that if a quarterback is black he has to be a dual threat quarterback he can't be a pocket passer um even in the age when most people uh uh are are athletic quarterbacks, with the exception of guys who are very obviously pocket passers. But you look at a guy like Josh Rosen, who's going to go through this process, Sam Darnold, who will go through this process, Baker Mayfield, who will go through this process, even to a lesser extent at his height. But uh, when Lamar Jackson goes through this process – you're going to see so much of this stuff come up that Jackson is a playmaker he's dynamic all of these different things but when they talk about Rosen and Darnold they'll be playmakers too but they'll they'll be mental warriors and guys who are tough and have it figured out and know how to win in the tough games and this stuff will be mentioned more about them than it will about Lamar Jackson even though I truthfully feel if you watch Film of both of these guys. Right now, Lamar Jackson is much further ahead of Sam Darnold, at least in terms of understanding everything that's going to take. Whether or not Lamar Jackson can do it will be up to Lamar Jackson. But right now, we're talking about a kid who's at the apex of his footballing career right now. and yet he's still dismissed um um in 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 you know the the anonymous scout circle that pops up an anonymous scout has seen more players than i know what to do with in in my lifetime that guy is the most credentialed warrior of us all um but, but it just it bugs me because this is the type of stuff that's going to come up, and we know it's going to happen, and yet it 's going to occur anyway why <sighs>
1: It, it, it's an excellent point. Uh, you uh, you have elicited a couple really good thoughts. Uh, one uh, strictly about Lamar Jackson, but then two, I'm going to make a second point about mental toughness. But about Lamar Jackson, you know the NFL has not turned the corner in terms of being a culture which which courts risk taking and you know in sports as in life one must take risks the the, the key that, and the point that gets lost in any discussion of risk is that you know the risk needs to be a reasonable risk you know obviously you you, know, you don't punt on I mean, you, you you know you should punt on fourth and twelve uh, when you're tied at, at midfield uh, with six minutes left in the fourth quarter. No one would dispute that. but let, let's take as a representative example, Bill O'Brien of the Houston Texans. You know he had fourth down and half a yard against the Patriots late in the game uh, several weeks ago. If he gets that half yard, you know the Houston gets a first down and very likely runs out the clock. Tom Brady doesn't get one more possession, but he did. He chose to kick a field goal. Brady drove down. Patriots win. Then this past weekend, O'Brien has third and four, with Deshaun Watson, Watson torching the Legion of Boom for over 400 yards passing, but he does a read a read option run. You know he wasn't willing to to trust. Watson to throw the ball on what still is a passing down. Seahawks stopped uh, the the running play. Uh, Russell Wilson got one more shot, won the game. So, I mean, the NFL is still predominantly a risk-averse culture, and it's risk-averse in the sense of it doesn't even court the reasonable risks. We're not talking about the wild risks. We're talking about reasonable uh, moves late in games where doing the thing which, you know, invites more negative possibilities is also at the same time the thing that you do best as a team or as an offense you should do that which you do best late in a game to get a game feeling first down rather than play it quote unquote safe so that the you know you might you increase the likelihood of punting and giving the other team and the other elite quarterback on the other side a chance to win the game. So this this notion about Lamar Jackson uh, having the, you know more questions thrown his way compared to a Rosen or a Donald, as you accurately note, I think that's largely rooted in the NFL's risk averse culture. And again, risk averse in the sense of not even embracing the reasonable risks, the risks that carry high rewards on the other side. Um, that that's something that the NFL has. to has to worry about uh, as a culture and, and improve on in the coming years but here's the second point the the the, the fact that Lamar Jackson you know plays a uh, very aggressive game with high upside when he's when he's great and perhaps more mistakes when he's not great you know that is uh, perhaps a volatile form of performance but it's volatile in a way that makes sense first it makes sense in that it, it's consistent with Jackson's skill set. Second, it's something Jackson has to do because his receivers drop so many passes for Louisville. So that's also born of necessity. And third, just just the fact that, you know, if you are if you are aggressive in ways that make your floor as an athlete higher than other players ceilings, well that's something you should do as a matter of course. So for for all the ways in which Jackson might not be a fully polished player, and there are a few ways in which he's not fully polished. The the intermediate sideline route uh, has been something that he has not thrown crisply all season. So, I mean, there are things to identify in his game. But in terms of this larger notion of his swashbuckling style being somehow a negative or worse, undisciplined, I, I really shudder when I when I hear that mentioned about Jackson. Um, that that all has to do with a, a much larger context and it's easy to forget a lot of details and so a point that I want to hammer home here is that meant part of being mentally disciplined and I think you and I are in agreement that we should use that term instead of mental toughness is that fair
0: yeah absolutely. That,
1: okay so in, in terms of this notion of, of mental discipline and, and this, this sometimes comes across in football, but I see it most in tennis. Uh, a lot of times, you know, obviously when some guy sp- – Sprays airs, you know, three or five feet be beyond the court in tennis. You know, it's easy that he's peeing his pants and you know, it's just, you know, he's rattled. But one form of uh, being rattled that is harder for the for people to notice, especially if they don't watch tennis all the time.
0: <laughs> Sorry, it's simply I, I, you you you, <laughs> the, you left the fruit there. I have to take it. One would argue that if he's spraying it three feet beyond the court, he's not peeing his pants, Matt. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well played. Well played. That was well, very well done.
0: We'll, we'll continue. We'll
1: continue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, one thing that is, you know, for people who watch tennis, they notice this, but people who don't watch tennis all the time, a lot of times a player will hit a ground stroke that lands at the back of the service box, you know, the horizontal line across the middle portion of the court. In other words, you know, way, way inside the baseline all right, normally a, a good, well-hit ground stroke should be, you know, a foot to a foot and a half inside the baseline, in other words, deep into the other side of the court so that the other guy doesn't have a short ball to to clobber for, a, for an easy winner, so a sign of tension is often not hitting the ball three or five feet out, but just hitting the ball shorter and with less clean contact, um, you know the, the 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 ball doesn't fly, you know, well out of bounds. But it's not hit cleanly, uh, and that's often a product of the feet just not moving quickly enough to get to the exact right hitting position. You know, tennis involves a lot of really short, choppy baby steps, a lot a lot of half steps uh, to get exactly to the right point to hit the ball as smoothly, as flatly as possible. So in other words, nerves often manifest themselves in sports, not with the the big error. I mean, obviously that can and does happen a lot, but many times being nervous is simply about not moving fluidly, uh, not uh, j- just being in a natural flow in terms of how the athlete's body is supposed to React and move. It's not as though you're panicky or you're, you know, just totally discombobulated. No, you're just not moving that half step uh, as normally or as responsibly as usual. So, in terms of bringing this full circle to address your point about Lamar Jackson, he is always in 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 full movement. Now, I very rarely see him. Uh, hesitate in terms of how he's supposed to move on the field um, I, I see that he processes the game I think with profound mental acuity and, and that really um, uh, get, you know undercuts even more the notion that somehow he is less mentally disciplined uh, than a lot of other people around him so really in terms of the NFL's risk averse culture and also in terms of that notion of mental discipline being manifested as a sign of fluid movement uh, as opposed to, you know, just being kind of less, a little more sluggish, you know, Jackson really checks a lot of those boxes in terms of being mentally disciplined. So nothing could be further from the truth than the notion that somehow he lags behind his uh, pocket passing counterparts uh, at UCLA and USC.
0: Which the funny part about those pocket passing counterparts is that when you were talking about Jackson at the beginning of this, it's sort of like, you know, high yield, uh, but at the same time accident-prone uh, or, or, or mistake-prone, rather, and, and we both hate the term undiscipline, I look at Sam Darnold, and if you want to be honest, I see more undiscipline in what Darnold does than what Jackson does, but... I don't think either man or undisciplined. I just think that when you look at the type of play, what is being asked of both quarterbacks, it's, it,
2: it's
0: look, man, I don't think it's any, any uh, uh, coincidence that reports are coming out uh, conflicting reports or, or maybe even supporting reports that, that, Donald's likely going to come back to USC. And anybody who's watched him play up to this point couldn't find a reason why you would say, no, 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 dude. Go pro. Go pro. You have learned everything you possibly can. Go ahead and go pro. right? I cannot say that having watched Darnold's uh, uh, year. I'm not sure I can say that about Jackson under Petrino, you know? Like, if, if, if it were – I don't think it's even possible for him to come back, right? I believe I believe he's exhausted his eligibility. Or was he a redshirt junior?
1: Uh I think you know I think he has one more year of eligibility okay. if he wants it but the notion because because he won the Heisman last year I think it just it it has not been seriously entertained that he would play a year beyond this one.
0: Right and that's sort of what what the the the, the thinking has been with with Darnold for much of the year uh, Rosen too that people would just believe he's going to go on but honestly I uh, because I've been familiar with Rosen's recruiting all the way back to when you know he was at st John Bosco there are some pretty consistent things that I have heard said about him uh, uh, both by people who had recruited him scouts and people who currently have ties to Ucla and, and I'm not going to be the kid on the podcast but the point is is you, conti- you continue to hear things about guys, and, and this all affects where they slot in the NFL draft. Because whatever we hear, you know NFL scouts are getting the fu- – or, or, or teams, rather. They're getting the full story. We get some – Pointless, salacious rumor that may or may not be loaded with truths. They get like the police reports, the, you know, the witness statements. The NFL gets it all. They get everything. And 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 I don't know, man. It, it just it it's just curious to me that this whole concept of 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 mental acuity, uh, uh. E- it's it it's used as such a divisive weapon for for quarterbacks like Lamar Jackson um, and and even Cam Newton, Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson got it double because you know uh, people were knocking him coming out because he wasn't the right height. And his dual threat game didn't fit the NFL. Never mind the fact that Russell Wilson was as much of a pocket passer coming out of out of two universities, Wisconsin and, and North Carolina State as, as he was an athlete. It just happens to be that Russell Wilson is a phenomenal athlete. And a great quarterback, but that's not how people talked about him coming out of college.
1: Well, one one point to make about Wilson, and hey, and f- full disclosure here, you know, I, I spend part of my year in Seattle. I have lived in Seattle since 1994. Uh, Mostly, when I'm not in Seattle, I'm in Phoenix. But you know, I am a Seahawks fan. My brother's a Seahawks fan, and you know, I was initially skeptical of Wilson when he was drafted. I mean, I I I did feel okay. I can see why Pete Carroll and John Schneider chose him, but boy, you know, he did make a lot of head scratching mistakes at Wisconsin. He took he took a lot of risks. Now, of course, when he made great plays, oh, he was spectacular in college, but he made enough head-scratching plays uh, that made you go – Gee, is he ever going to rein that in? And you know, every now and then with the Seahawks, he will still make one of those really head scratching plays. But it's clear that for every head scratching play he makes, he makes several more really good plays. And he, and most of all, he makes great plays consistently in fourth quarters. I mean, and, and that is that is something that I, I don't think. People were, were fully convinced of, uh, when he, when he, uh, was drafted, uh, but he certainly has that it factor, that, that thing that you can't teach. And I think we would certainly up, file that under, we would certainly file that under mental discipline. And the thing is, Josh, he, Wilson is a risk-taking quarterback. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if he and Lamar Jackson play the same way. What was his line at
0: NC State prior to going to Wisconsin? Because I know he took some risks at Wisconsin, but I feel like him trying to fit into that system coming out of NC State could have had as much to do with some of those mistakes as... As him being a risk taker, because I I don't know if my memory serves me correctly, but I thought before NC State decided they weren't going to allow him to do both, that he had something like a line of 34 and 9. Was, was was what he had, like 34 touchdowns across nine interceptions passing. And I don't remember what he had rushing, but that's, I believe, was his line coming out of college. I, 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 I don't have the stats in front of me. I, I I should have, but I didn't know this discussion was going to go here. But either way, I, I believe that him coming out, or, or if he had some relatively – positive numbers at NC State. They kind of stayed up there uh, uh, when he was at Wisconsin, but no denying that they took a little bit of a dip. I think that was offensive. Him moving from one offense to another and being asked to do... Somewhat different things at the time. NC State wasn't wasn't too too much different, but I I, I do feel like Wisconsin's offense at the time was was very well. It, it was Wisconsin.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the same offense that's been there, you know, more or less for uh, a quarter of a century, you know, because it's Barry Alvarez's program regardless of the specific person in charge of the program. I mean, we're, and we're seeing, you know, to make a Wisconsin point here, we're seeing how well Brett Bielema is doing outside of the Alvarez umbrella uh, you know, in the SEC with Arkansas. So, you know, how, how we evaluate Russell Wilson at Wisconsin, uh, uh you know, it, it, that, that has, that's an evolving thing with, with the benefit of hindsight because it's clear that, uh, at least clear to me that as opposed to Brett Bielema, you know, having this unique gift for college football coaching, Um, it was more a part of just him harnessing the certain advantages and familiarity he had at Wisconsin uh, to a particularly good degree more than him figuring out certain things that uh, uh, other uh, people haven't
0: Chip Kelly line of succession it wasn't that Chip Kelly was so amazing at what he did it was that he fell in line behind Baladi and everybody uh, it, it, it just sort of worked
1: yeah, and and, well, and and Kelly was able to take what Bolatti had uh, and take it to the next level. And, you know, it's worth noting, you, you know, you, Josh, have in the past covered Fresno State football. Fresno State is enjoying a little renaissance this year under Jeff Tedford in 2001 when Oregon retrospectively should have played Miami for the national championship, the offensive coordinator who made Joey Harrington so good at Oregon was Jeff Tedford. So, uh, you know, Bellotti cultivated <laughs> and found. Jeff
0: Tedford isn't doing a damn thing for any of the quarterbacks at Fresno State this year, but they're winning. Well,
1: which is, which is better than they were doing the past few years. <laughs> but, <laughs> anyway, anyway so I mean, yeah. <laughs> But the larger point, the larger point being that you know there are ways of being at certain programs. The good programs have a culture, and they are able able to replicate it. I mean Nick Saban obviously being the ultimate example, um, but Billie's Oregon was one, and Chip Kelly came through that. And uh, the the Alvarez way at Wisconsin with the you know, benefiting from that, but then struggling outside its orb. So uh, those those are all points that affect how we evaluate the quarterback, such as Russell Wilson, uh, who came through those particular pipelines. It is worth noting, uh, since we're talking about Russell Wilson and also Oregon and also Wisconsin, that, you know, Joey Harrington, probably a guy who, I mean, I don't remember specific articles written about him uh, when he came out for the NFL draft roughly 15 years ago, but I imagine that since he was a tall, stately, handsome, white quarterback, he probably was called pretty cerebral in a reasonable uh, percentage of outlets. But, you know, Russell Wilson, this risk-taking quarterback who could sometimes make the really bad mistake, uh, he has become, you know, a giant you know who is on his way probably to the Hall of Fame, but certainly if if the Seahawks make the divisional round this year, the Seahawks will be one of only two teams to make the divisional round six straight years, the New England Patriots being the other. So in terms of mental discipline, you know, Russell Wilson is continuing to build a very considerable legacy in Seattle.
0: Yeah, and 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 it's so funny too. You bring up uh, Joey Harrington and the possibility that that a lot of what was written about him had him down as a as a as a cerebral, mentally tough quarterback. Well, uh, Texas State authorities. Uh, and, and 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 you know you look at guys. There's another quarterback. I'm sorry that I say Texas State authorities, and this guy comes to mind. But Ryan Leaf. How many? Because you remember Ryan Leaf and Peyton Manning. I mean, if that wasn't the ultimate one one-on-one, if it wasn't the ultimate one-on-one. Uh, 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 draft debate. I don't know what was, but um, you look at how many things had to have been written about him in that same vein, and and where Joey Harrington didn't succeed, Ryan Leaf just collapsed. I mean, talk about a guy from 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 about the same area uh, of 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 the country um who who just imploded with the pressure on him
1: and you know what what do we make of that kind of story uh for and and I I'm being clear here what kind of story do do we make about that for a person not the athlete the person and and obviously you know so much money is invested in the athlete part of this you know for the mm-hmm. chargers And, uh, you know, for the communities that, you know, pin their hopes in a uh, number two pick as being the messiah or savior of a franchise that has never won the Super Bowl in the Chargers case, you know, I, and all those emotions are understandable, and, and and certainly within the the sphere of athletic competition on Sundays, legitimate. You know, it's okay to boo these guys uh, because they're you know million dollar athletes, and you pay a pretty good uh, sum of money to get a season ticket on the fifty yard line on Sundays. You know, booing them as athletes in the competitive arena, you know, that's fine, that's fair game, but to when, when the when the hearing stops on Sunday night and the scoreboard's at zero and then you're you're uh driving home, you know, you go back to your house Sunday night and then you wake up Monday morning. You know, if you're getting flack from, from your neighbors then, you know, that's a very different thing because then you're being treated as a person uh in your private time, in your private sphere, you know, in your neighborhood, with, you know, at or near your residence. And you know, it's it's to a certain extent that spillover is inevitable. But I think that in the age of social media, uh, with everything everything being so instant, and with with people knowing so many more details about the lives of of public figures in a way which was never true in the 1980s before the advent of the internet, and which was a lot less true in the 1960s when professional athletes generally had to you know pull a second job. In in the off-season, uh, which was a way for them to establish neighborly relationships with uh, people in their communities. Um, you know, in, in today's day and age, it's, it's certainly regrettable uh, and, and to a certain small extent unavoidable, but we can't just, as a society, I'm not talking about pro sports leagues, I'm talking as a society here, we can't just say, well, this is the inevitable result of, you know, the Internet and social media. Our, our colleges, our universities need to be uh, very upfront uh, in adjusting for to to the present day and also into the future in terms of educating not just athletes, but any person in any profession, especially the public professions, but really any profession, about how to uh, manage oneself and to manage one's life, uh, to manage one's thoughts, uh it, it as a whole person and i think that, that when we when we talk about the mental side of sports as much as it, it is a separate realm from the rest of one's life you know and that and that the the way one performs on the field should not be a measure of the of a person uh as a moral and ethical being and as a citizen what we should do and what we can do as a society is to educate young people about that very reality and to not take, uh, you know, as you talked about with Barrett Sally last week, to not take your work home with you because you are so much more than what you do. Um, if, if we are only what we do, then all the sports writers and bloggers who are either getting laid off. And a lot of my colleagues at FanRank sports have gotten laid off in, in recent days, um, you know, if we are only what we do and we get hit by layoffs and, and job cuts and, indus- and industry fluctuations, well, then we are inviting ourselves to, for ourselves, a, a life filled of, with depression and misery. But knowing that we are much more than what we do and knowing that we have inherent dignity and value and knowing that we can be safe in our thoughts uh, in a way which transcends uh, sports and which transcends uh, the, the fate on an athletic field, such as Ryan Leaf, um, you know, that is extremely important, and that is something that our society, as manifested in our secondary educational institutions, simply does not do, and that is, some, that is a large piece of terrain uh, that we need to stake out as a society in the future. And I think that... You mentioned
0: because I'm reminded of something that came up during our sociology class, and our professor gets up there. Uh, this is in the very beginnings of, of my sociological career, but a professor gets up there and is like, well, why do we get a college education? And people start listing off the, 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 the primary reasons or the manifest reasons of why we get an education, and our professor is like, well, what are some of the latent reasons? And, and there was a huge debate over whether you going to college because, uh, you get a good job because, you know, that's how your parents tell you, you go to college to get a good job that, you know, that's anybody who's, I don't know, about my age, maybe 25 or younger has heard the phrase, you know, and I'm sure some parents are still repeating it though. We are beating it out of ourselves as society more and more. We're drifting further and further away from academia and I, I'm not so sure that's a good thing, but uh, you – I do think it is a good thing that that, that we're no longer tying – you go to college to get a good job because I think that's the beginning of where, like you say, we begin to take our home – work with us – we begin to take our work home with us, rather, and we become almost – Intertwined with with our careers, if if that makes sense. It's, it's what we do is as much of who we are as going to college. We went to college to become whatever it is we are. And the funny part about that is how many people really went to college to be what they are? I'm sure some people did. A good a good chunk of you, you know, go to journalism school. But outside of specified majors, like, does everyone with an English degree teach English? Does everyone with a child and adolescent degree work with kids? Does everyone with a sociology degree go out into the real world and do qualitative or quantitative research? No. Well, they do not, but we still tie that in to our worth, and I'm curious why that is. I mean, I don't know if, if, if that whole discussion made sense, but I feel like that's where it begins for us as a society.
1: Sure, and we're talking, of course, as an American society, and, I, and you're yep. absolutely right, Josh, you know, we, we ask ourselves, or ourselves, we ask each other when we greet each other often, how are you doing? And it's not an accident that we say, how are you doing, as opposed to, you know, are you holistically well? You know, we don't, we don't greet people with that, we we ask how you doing, and and our doing is more often more important than our being as Americans. You know, and we take first of all, you know, we don't uh, structurally as a country we take fewer weeks off of vacation per year than Europeans, just in terms of what companies generally allow. But then within that subset of the vacation time that companies will allow us, you know, um, the American worker doesn't take. All of his or her vacation time, and and so it, it, it's a very clear manifestation that we're wrapped up in our work, and and, and we associate that with our identity very strongly. And so it, it beyond the obvious stuff of you know being, up,
0: are we wrapped up in it? Or and, and I want to use this as an example because it's the most striking example I can think of. Think about women in 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 like say the legal field or the medical field. If they, they almost can't have families, and this is again something we've talked about in, in in one of my you know women in sociology classes. They have to forego the family for the career, and that's because if they decide to have the family, the time that they would lose whereas you know because the law is changing every day and 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 medicine is changing every day and there is an element of you do need to be continuously in the field to understand what's happening it's like taking a season off of the soap opera you miss the whole lot um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean we should use it as a tool uh uh to tell a woman or 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 force the woman to choose between the career and the workplace. It's just uh, the most stunning example I can think of of what you're you know maybe maybe a different uh explanation for for we're wrapped up in it. Some people are forced to be wrapped up in it.
1: That is absolutely true. And, and another layer to add on top of that, Josh, is that, you know, in various academic and research departments at schools yep. for the women who do try to pursue a career, mm-hmm. the, the supervisor or chair of that, of, the, of that academic department is a man, and they have to play the internal office departmental politics in, a, in accordance with how that man thinks or operates they have to play a political game which only reinforces the need to perhaps make choices that you know if they if these career minded women had their brothers you know they would make a different choice but they're forced to play what is often a male or masculine uh, guided political game so that they curry favor within their uh, academic department so that they get that grant money they get that uh good position uh within faculty they Get that good research track. I mean, this is something that is is rampant in the sciences and and in many other uh, academic and research departments. So you know, it takes what you said, and it just you know it adds other layers layers to it. So let's just stop and appreciate that point that if you are what you do, if you are you know your work or your research or your life's endeavor, your your career pursuit, but uh, a person who is in charge of your academic path or the person who can get you that good internship placement, whatever, is, you know, either set against you or wants to extract certain favors or concessions from you that you don't feel ethically comfortable with, how do you then develop a healthy sense of identity if that identity is so strongly culturally connected to your work? It's really an impossible position to be in. And I would just want to draw and complete this circle, Josh, that our school's Really, our colleges, but I think also high schools as well. High schools have an important role here. We should be educating each, each other, and we should be educating high school age and college age people to learn how to cope with those kinds of tensions and those kinds of conflicts. Because if you can manage to have a, a sense of the whole self, in a, a pressure cooker and a cauldron such as that, then you can really manage your whole life. Then you can then you can be a successful athlete, but also be a successful person such that if you get injured uh, and you know, when your NFL career is over two years after it begins, you don't feel that your life is at a dead end. You you, you realize that there is this holistic grounding uh, that that gives you. Meaning and something which enables you to greet every day as as a positive, as a gift, as an opportunity, but if we just educate people for work, for endeavors, for um, specific skills, not that we shouldn't, of course, that we if we just educate for the skills and not for you know how to cope with a, a, a difficult life moment, how to think critically, how to reconcile various tensions, you know, then then um, you know we we get even more into this pit of thinking that, you know, you can only be a success in life if you make it big uh, as an athlete, you know, that only if you, you know, hit the game-winning uh, home run in Game 7 of the World Series, but only then are you a success, or at the very least, only if you make a, a, an obscene pile of money, you know, only then, you know, are you are you doing it right. You know, We have to step outside of that prism, P-R-I-S-M, so that we can also step outside of that prison, P-R-I-S-O-N, uh, in terms of very narrowly defining what it means to be a whole human being and what it means to live a, a life well and a life successfully. Um, that really can, can relieve so much of the pressure that we place on ourselves Mentally, um, you know, for for the athletes who are there, uh, but also for all of us uh, out, outside the sphere of athletics. You know, it's 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 a widely rampant thing that even for athletes who make a lot of money, they they get broke uh, very soon because no one taught them how to manage money. No one taught them various life habits that are not really they are not they do not deal directly with sports. They are sim- they are they are simply situations which often. Uh, coincide with li- a life spent in and around sports, but by if we neglect the holistic aspects of education, you know, being able to ha- being able to manage a life and its emotions. And its conflicts and its responsibilities, then teaching someone how to be an athlete, uh, you know, doesn't really mean that much because what else is there going to be once the athletic career inevitably ends? So, you know, the, the, the our sense of what it means to identify ourselves with work, we can see that the pitfalls of that on a general level. But hopefully, we can draw a lot more lines in, in very specific directions that enable our society to tangibly respond. Uh, to this shortcoming Yeah, it's
0: it's definitely going to be interesting to see societally how we respond to this what sort of measures we take <clears throat> and even at the macro level, institutionally uh, for sports bringing this completely full circle, how are you know, because this is going to become a growing question in, in, in the NCAA's ongoing battle with with O'Bannon and others is the NCAA is very much tying what these athletes do to who they are rather than treating them as an individual who also happens to be playing. You know, when a guy gets a scholarship for chemistry, um, he's not just a chemist. You know, it's – it's It's weird to see athletes cast in in such a immovable light simply because they chose to accept a scholarship from a school for an athletic venture and and, and you know and i and I brought this up way back when, but I've said you know if if A a guy who accepted a scholarship for chemistry decided he wanted to market or start his own business while he was in college and then make profits off of that business, it would be no issue. Because a college athlete did it, though, it's a violation. And it's ridiculous to me. So – you know, I am very curious to see how the NCAA and the courts address this issue because I think it has precedent. In, in, a, in a large uh, Array of fields uh, Moving forward it's, it's going to Set the basis For how we view Athletes, how we view uh, uh, College athletes and, and really What we think about who they are As opposed to What they do for a living As, as you so eloquently put it How you doing, Matt? Yeah, well, and
1: you just eloquently put it. You you just gave a very eloquent statement about how the NCA defines athletes by their work and not as whole persons. And and my goodness, that that just really sums up uh, how the NCA is is you know ignorantly and perhaps unwittingly um, being part of a much larger cultural dynamic that we have to find a way to break yeah
0: and 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 hopefully I say hopefully I don't know too many people that'll be cheering for the NCAA but hopefully that happens sooner rather than later uh Matt before we get out of here I want to give you the opportunity to talk about one of the Fifty outlets that you write for, even though they're all a lot of them under the same umbrella um, and, and and any other cause to which you might want to draw eyeballs uh this is this is now your time you 've done this before with me. you know what to do.
1: Absolutely. Well, I'm doing the Patreon thing, folks, and uh, my uh, college football site is patreon.com slash Zemek and professional tennis is patreon.com slash Matt Zemek uh, and uh, I'm trying to just do the independent freelance writing thing and uh, I do put out work consistently over the course of a week uh, and uh, I'm going to write it through at least 2018. I've made that commitment to myself, um, but, you know, Work work does cost money. Work has a certain level of value, and I just simply ask that for anyone who enjoys what I have to write, um, and I just wrote a, a piece on Arizona and USC uh, at my college football Patreon site. You know, if you like my work, I certainly impre- appreciate a, a thank you on Twitter, but the biggest thanks you can give is, is to simply put a dollar or two not any kind of a hard-earned roll of 20s, but just a buck or two in the tip jar. Um, if uh, 100 people do that, you know, then I think I'm meeting my target and getting a, a good return on, on my investment. Um, in terms of a cause, Josh, I would only say this, that, um, and, and you know, this is the mental side of sports, and I think we have covered a lot of terrain in sports but I want to just go to mental health holistically, uh, and because this is a big deal for me, and it's simply that whenever we look at someone who um, is suffering, and particularly someone who commits an act of violence, and we're seeing plenty of that, at least in public, um, that the person who commits an act of violence is someone who is in great pain, and that it, it is. It is easy to recognize a broken knee as an injury, but the broken mind, you know, we don't, we don't see that physically. There is no mark or there is no bent joint or bone. Uh, you know, when when someone is in great pain uh, and doesn't know how to handle that pain or transfer that pain, uh, it is said by, by a guy named Richard Rohr, who is the head of the Center for Action and Contemplation based in Albuquerque. It's a great organization, and it does have a website, C-A-C, He has said when pain does not get transformed, converted into something healing and positive and nourishing, it it gets transferred. And often in, in a spray of bullets... Or in some other act of violence, that that a person who feels so uh, empty, nihilistic that he or she would want to take another life or inflict pain on someone else—that is pain inside that person's heart. And I know that plenty of people don't believe in God, and that's absolutely fine. Um, You know that that is not the measure of a person. What one's uh, doctrines or or stated beliefs are or aren't—that's not not the measure of a person. What we need to get to and, and emphasize in society is that we have to know how we can hold pain in a way that is safe, safe for us and safe for others, that we can transform pain into healing and new hope and renewal uh, and inner peace, instead of transferring pain in the form of a punch or a knife stab or, or violence or anything like that. So pain is a is something that isn't just inflicted. It's something that's harbored inside ourselves. And learning how to deal pain, which is something, by the way, our colleges need to do. But that is the, the greatest thing in my mind that. Any human person can do, not only in terms of self-care, but also in terms of being able to reach out to someone else. That if if, if the the pains and struggles of life um, feel great, being able to teach someone how to handle that more than anything else is the greatest thing we can do at a point in our American life when, a lot of pain is simply being vented without having a positive transforming effect. So that is that is the cause more than anything that I write about sports and college football or tennis uh, that that is the thing that I'd like all of our listeners uh, to take with us tonight and and for the next week. Uh
0: that that is that is definitely something to which I can relate and, and understand, especially especially the part about pain not being transformed, it being transferred. I was like, wow, that that basically describes my entire angst-filled youth. Um, but, but, but for those who know my story, I am not mocking what Matt is saying. My angst-filled youth comes with a variety of different institutions and so on and so forth. So, so I'm not mocking it so much as reliving it. Um, uh, but, uh, b- before we get out of here, let people know where they can find you on Twitter. And, uh, I will close this out.
1: Okay, well, my college football and, and general American sports Twitter handle is Matt Z- at Matt Zemeck, and my live tweeting tennis Twitter handle is M. Zemek my first initial and my last name um so that's those are the twitter places where people can find me and uh i would only simply say that if you want to have a deeper conversation uh reach out to me on twitter be glad to have correspondence by email or phone um would would be glad to continue any of various conversations about life society um Critical thinking, holistic wellness, and of course college football and tennis if you're so inclined.
0: And I can tell you from personal experience that Matt can do all three, all four, all five, all six, all, all of the above at once. Um, so for myself and my producer, Mr. Sean Harris, who you may know on Twitter as Tater of the Ute football world, um, but I want to give a shout-out to Sean, who's been gracious enough to produce this podcast uh, free of charge so that people can hear it. And here done well. So if you would like to follow him, he can be found on Twitter at InkTater. If you'd like to follow me, you can be found I can be found on Twitter at Fight On Twist. And we will be back next week with another guest to talk about who knows what. That's the beauty of this podcast, is to sort of let the guest pick the topic and we go from there. So I wanna thank Matt. I wanna thank our listeners and we will be back next time here on mental side of the game you've been listening to an episode of mental side of the game as always we would like to thank our guests for taking time out of their day to join us we would also like to thank our sponsor blog talk radio without whom none of this would be possible if you'd like to follow josh on twitter you can do so at fight on twist all one word where he is always open to discussion and questions on these topics and many others we'll catch you next week here on the show and remember if you haven't gotten to where you're going Chances are, you're probably not there yet. Thanks for listening.